Hello everyone, welcome to the episode 36 of Solid Saturday. The guest we have today, Pablos Ullman. I met him in 2018 actually uh, during the Data Science Co conference and since then I am connected with him and I'm following him on the LinkedIn. So what should I talk about him actually? I can't describe him in a single word. Uh, he is an inventor, he is an advisor, he is a founder. He is a faculty member, he is a public speaker, and most importantly, he is a top class hacker. So let's welcome him and hear more about his career journey. How did he find his passion and managing to lead his area of interest? So thank you so much, Solman. Uh, I really appreciate your time and consideration to be a guest on my podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. So to begin with, actually, as I mentioned in the introduction itself, that, you know, uh, you tried to be everywhere and uh, you are doing uh, well, actually. So I would like to ask is like, what do you enjoy the most and why? Well, I think there's a, um, you know, most of my work has been in trying to um, advance new technologies, you know, invent new technologies, bring them into the world and really show people with the potential that we have to really use technology as a force multiplier, as a way of attacking some of the biggest problems that we have in the world. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, I get to do uh, a lot of different things that are, you know, related to that, but, um, you know, my favorite thing is, is, is succeeding at doing something new with, you know, with a new, with a technology. Um, you know, that's what I'm good at. I like to, you know, do things for the first time, mm -hmm. um, when it's time to do things, you know, in a methodical and repetitive fashion, I'm probably not the guy you want. <laughs> um, <laughs> but when it's time to do something that hasn't been done before, that's what I like to do. And so I really try to, um, optimize for being in situations where I'm able to help move something forward and, and do something new. Yeah. So it is more or like you are a true inventor, I guess, because you would like yeah. thing which is not there before. Right. And I'm one of the few people who've been lucky enough to get to work as an inventor. Mm -hmm. You know, that's mm -hmm. a that's a pretty un, you know, unusual uh, opportunity because, you know, most people who are inventors, you know, there's no job for you. There's no no, nobody you know who has a business card that says inventor on it, you know, ex except for me. <laughs> um, and it's because, you know, we don't have a, we don't have a good way of, you know, th those are pretty unusual people and we don't have a good way of categorizing them and they don't fit into our businesses and organizations well and they add a lot of risk and you never know what they're going to come up with. And yeah, so inventors don't, don't quite fit in businesses a lot of times and they don't quite fit in the scientific community a lot of times. And so um, I think they're sort of uh, underappreciated and underrepresented and undersupported. And so, um, you know, we, but we really, really need them. And we really need to figure out how to support the inventors because they're, they're the ones who figure out what's mm -hmm. possible and they're the ones who give us all our new technologies. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, uh, when I actually saw your profile first time in 2018, uh, the mm. first point that I noticed in your profile, it is like, you know, you, you have like uh, patterns, like so many, like, you know, <laughs> almost, which is like yeah. a huge for me. And I never visited anybody's profile like that. Like, you know, mm. like uh, n number of 
countless kind of patents so uh, do you like to uh, you know share any particular patent innovation with the audience which you always feel like you know that is the best one or something like that um so the so with patents you know i i worked for nathan mirvold at intellectual ventures and we invested heavily in patenting our inventions and um and so that was you know that's one of the reasons i have so many patents is that i worked on the on a team with other inventors and we were you know the most prolific inventors in america um so the thing about patents though is you know all the like all the easy inventions were done a long time ago right mm-hmm. um so these days a patent tends to be pretty specific pretty detailed pretty narrow very technical um and um and there's a lot of legal uh aspects to it in order for a patent to be usable and enforceable there's a lot of legal constructs in it so um so by the time you actually have a patent mm-hmm. you know it's it 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 doesn't often like represent a um uh you know like there's not there's not for example like there's not a patent for like the iPhone <laughs> you know um the iPhone is like 2000 patents in a product you know so and so a bunch of my patents were um probably the one of the largest areas in which those patents uh are relevant is 3D printing and specifically I'm I was the first one to try and advance 3D printing to print food. And so a whole bunch of those patents are related to printing food and and using machines and robotics to assemble meals. And that at the time, you know, this is over a decade ago I was working on this stuff and so at the time it sounded crazy. But every year it sounds a little less crazy. And um and so I'm really excited about that because there's a lot of potential in improving the way that we make meals for people to make it more efficient mm-hmm. and to make it so that um when uh when we're doing that we can customize meals for people and that's what a lot of those patents uh are related to is that kind of uh, invention work and so I came up with a bunch of technologies to help do that in different ways that we could could do that and so um that's that's some of the interesting stuff there's a lot of different inventions in there though yeah, yeah. that's great actually when technology can help you know uh, yeah on some social cause and help. of course so that's great and thank you so much for sharing so do you remember that when did it started actually for you like the idea of innovation and uh, you invented something when you were young yeah um I'm unusual because I, you know, I grew up in Alaska, mm-hmm. which is very remote um and cold and dark mm-hmm. and there's nothing much to do there. Mm-hmm. But I got a computer when I was uh I guess about 9 years old mm-hmm. and this is in the 70s. So I got one of the first like home computers mm-hmm. that, you know, ever that a kid could have, you know, and and so I had a computer all to myself. just earlier than pretty much everyone else on the planet and so partly because of that um i you know i had an interest in it and it was exciting to me it was like this bottomless pit of puzzles you know i was just trying to like learn about it and understand but i couldn't learn from anyone there was nobody for a thousand miles in any direction who knew more about the computer than i did 
-hmm. as a kid. And so it was a big deal just to be able to learn how it worked. I had to just try everything, you know, so I, I learned in a very autodidactic fashion and I learned, mm -hmm. you know, I learned about computers by reverse engineering 6502 assembly language. Mm -hmm. That's how I learned to program. You know, that's not, that doesn't make any sense. Like nobody would do that on purpose. You know, you can learn to code from YouTube. <laughs> I didn't have that. So I just had to try changing ones to zeros and see what happened. You know, um, that was a very, very uh, inefficient way to learn to program computers. But I learned a lot mm -hmm. at a very fundamental level about how the computer worked. And then I just constantly had to learn what was new. And so I was able to build a very deep knowledge of computers that I've been doing my whole career and I'm always only learning the new stuff and it's just hard to catch up to me. But all along the way, I felt, I always felt like I had this superpower, mm -hmm. you know, I, that came from the computer. You know, it came from, like I could see how someday this was going to have more memory and someday it was going to have a faster CPU and someday it was going to be useful. No one believed me. But, uh, but I was right. And, you know, uh, eventually computers did get fast and powerful and cheap and we use them for everything now. And I just kind of got lucky in that sense that it turned out to be valuable. But, but I have always been most motivated by that feeling that, you know, we could use this computer to change the way we do something and do it better or faster or cheaper or in a more humane fashion or a more efficient way, you know, that's what I want to be doing is I want to apply these technologies um, to change the way we do things and do them better. And, and that's fundamentally what we've been doing with technology or, you know, in all of, all of human history, you know, this, this is what gives us those capabilities. Yes. Yeah. I saw that in your profile as well, that, you know, using the superpowers and I feel like you are using it very efficiently that <laughs> in the society as well alongside. So that's great. And uh, moving towards your recent achievement, that is like, you know, you founded your new firm, uh, Composite. So what does Yeah. It yeah. So Composite is, um, <laughs> what we're trying to do is reinvent the way that we manufacture things. So I, in some sense, I described that with using 3D printers to print food. Mm -hmm. But you could, but that same model could be used to, to make all kinds of things as we have like increasingly, you know, general purpose uh, tools for producing things, you know, 3d printers are a good example of a programmable tool mm -hmm. that doesn't care if it ever makes the same thing twice, right? That's a lot different than most factory tools, which are built to make zillions of the exact same thing. And it's expensive to change. Well, with 3D printers, you know, you could, you could print something different every time. And that gives you the ability to sort of make physical things the way we make software, you know, in a very iterative, mm -hmm. you know, uh, dynamic fashion with the, where the, the product cycle is short. And we, we don't have to guess, you know, so far in advance what's going to work. Mm -hmm. We can just try things and steer towards what works. Mm -hmm. You look at the way we do software development now. Um, it's very iterative and that's not true for physical stuff. And so anyway, so with comp with composite, what we're trying to do is take that notion and apply it to apparel manufacturing. Mm -hmm. So the way we make clothes, um, 
is, is you know it's turned out to be one of the you know worst industries in the world you know we're very inefficient uh the apparel industry produced about 150 billion garments last year mm -hmm. um 55 of that is already in landfills mm -hmm. and and 30 percent of it was just never sold in the first place that's overproduction imagine if the auto industry threw away 30 percent of the cars without ever driving them yeah and apparel is almost as big like this is a this is a disaster for humans. It's a disaster for the planet. It's um, estimated to be almost 10% of global CO2 emissions. 20% of global fresh water pollution is from making clothes. Ah. And we're going to run out of water. Like this is one of the biggest problems. So the way we do it, um, you know, a lot of that, so a lot of that problem fundamentally just maps to speculative manufacturing. You're, guessing a year in advance what's going to sell you're manufacturing it in asia shipping it back to the u.s putting it in a warehouse eventually putting it in a store mm -hmm. waiting for somebody to discover it and buy it and you just guess wrong about what colors what sizes the designs the volumes you just can't guess perfectly no one can mm -hmm. so if you flip that on its head and imagine okay well if we built a magical robotic factory that could make clothes on demand and wait for you to click buy now mm -hmm. and then we make your clothes and ship them out the next day then we never guess wrong mm -hmm. right now we we make we produce after it's been sold instead of before it's sold mm -hmm. so we never overproduce and we never make a product that has until it's been sold we know who we're making it for mm -hmm. we know what size what color what design everything we make it for you and we send it to you. There's no overstock, no inventory risk, mm -hmm. no liquidation sales, no brand devaluation, no waste, no disposal. Mm -hmm. and, and so that whole process is a way of changing the business so that it is, it is much, much better. And we, we've been doing that. We built one company to test these ideas and ran it for six years. Mm -hmm. And uh, we never made a product for the landfill. You know, and so it can be better. And this is really a case where, you know, it's an industry that hasn't adopted any technology for a hundred years. Mm -hmm. you know? And that's what, and so what we're trying to show is we, we don't even need to invent new technology yet. We just need to adopt a bunch of the things that already exist, mm -hmm. reinvent how the, the business is structured and we can get massive improvements. So that's what we've been working on. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's great, actually. And my second question was along the same line. Actually, you highlighted a couple of points around, you know, manufacturing industries. So yeah, more towards that. So what do you think? Like you already mentioned a couple of things, uh, but if you have to be specific about this, like what ways do you think are wrong in current way of manufacturing any apparel? Well, I think a lot of it, you know, um, you know, I'm looking at these things from the from the problems perspective. It's like, what are the biggest problems? What are we gonna do to address them? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, the biggest opportunity to make a difference is the gap created bet between what technology has been adopted and what technology is available, mm -hmm. right? And so you're looking for an industry where that gap is really big, mm -hmm. right? So for example, in you know, smartphones, that gap is pretty small, 
mm. right? Like all the technology you could put in a smartphone is already in there. But when you look at like manufacturing in apparel, the gap is huge. The, the last technology they adopted was the sewing machine 150 years ago. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of new technology that could close that gap, mm -hmm. right? And so, and, and, and with manufacturing industries, you almost always have a pretty big gap because, um, because for, for a variety of reasons, but you know, a lot of times, the you know especially the lower margin the product is like with apparel mm -hmm. um the higher volume the lower margin the more it has been pushed to low cost labor right mm -hmm. and so apparel is driven by low cost labor so that's why as an example of an industry that that's ripe for disruption mm -hmm. you know that's that's one that sort of checks all the boxes mm -hmm. other manufacturing industries like automotive there's higher margins, there's more money in it, they've been able to adopt more technology, so there's a smaller gap, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Now, they still have problems, but there's sort of less of an opportunity to improve the way manufacturing works in, in automotive than there is in apparel. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of one way you could look at it. Um, but, you know, this is fundamentally how you would look at almost any industry. You know, what's the what's the gap between what's technically possible and that changes every day because we get new technologies right mm -hmm. and what's actually happening in the industry and so you know the canonical example of course is things like uber where they just ignored smartphones in the taxi industry mm -hmm. right because taxis everybody's just doing taxis the way we've always done them and meanwhile everybody's carrying a smartphone and they have to call the taxi dispatcher and get a taxi to to come pick them up. Like that doesn't make any sense in a world where you have a GPS in your pocket and Google maps. And so Uber was able to replace an entire industry with a startup because they closed that gap and the industry wasn't, wasn't, I mean, any taxi company could have made an iPhone app, but none of them did. Mm -hmm. And that's why Uber was able to make, you know, such a big impact on that. And Airbnb did it with hospitality and Facebook did it to media. And, you know, we have all these cases. So what I'm trying to help people see is their job, you know, our job as technologists is to look for those gaps, mm -hmm. try to create, craft a practical vision for how we could close it mm -hmm. by adopting technologies that exist. In my case, I'm trying to get past it and invent out into the future, but you don't even have to do that most of the time. A lot of it is just, understanding the technology that we have mm -hmm. and figuring out how am I going to use that to, to close that gap and, and closing the gap really means, you know, mm -hmm. saving money, saving the planet, doing things in a better way. All those things that all the, the gap is the gap between better what's possible and where we are, you know, today. Right. So that's what we're trying to do. And, and uh, um, I always think of things that way. Yeah. Yeah. That, that that shows actually so uh, when we are talking about this i know technology innovation and uh, social cause it's moreover about uh, when you talk about finding the gap and uh, finding out so it is again like you know creating a different business line out of it kind of so the the way you given the example of uber they yeah. found something like you know which is missing and they found like a different thing which is kind of idea innovation i guess it is more over like generating an idea with the existing problem yeah and finding the solution towards it so that's great and um, moving towards our next uh, question is again uh, around you know uh, 
you were uh, as you talking lot more about superpowers and how you started uh, using the computers early in your age yeah. when yeah. you were in oqo uh, i would like to ask oh yeah long term like you know long form as well uh, what is that oqo stands for so build <laughs> the world's smallest pc the first ultra personal computer that was yeah. in a pocket but have all the power of a laptop would you like to share more insights to the audience as well as i am also very keen to learn Yeah, yeah so, so OQO was um started in the early, in about I think it was, the company was started about 2001 2000 or 2001 mm-hmm. and the the founding team had made the first titanium power book for Apple. Mm-hmm. So they had made the first laptop that was only 1 inch thick. <laughs> um and now that seems really thick but in those days it was like half of the thickness of a normal laptop and um mm-hmm. that seemed amazing at the time and what they wanted to do was go even further mm-hmm. because and if you just think about the progression of using computers you know they've become you know there's there's kind of two major traditions in computer usage that I, you know one way of thinking of it is you have computers for business mm-hmm. and computer and personal computers Mm-hmm. and personal computers are really what apple always focused on in some sense you could say this is like the difference between apple and microsoft back in the 80s and 90s you know it was microsoft was making computers for businesses apple was making them for people mm-hmm. and you know and um and that progression of making computers ever more personal continues to this day you know we started out with giant mainframes and then mini computers and then micro computers and desktop computers and then they ended up on your lap and then they ended up in your pocket and now they're ending up on your head because mm-hmm. we're trying to make them personal right for a computer to really help you it needs to be very closely integrated in your life right mm-hmm. and so you know it doesn't it's you know the computer is not very helpful if it's in a warehouse 700 miles away mm-hmm. right but when you can have a supercomputer in the palm of your hand well, it's starting to get pretty powerful like you and i are all cyborgs now like my brain used to be useful for things like memorizing phone numbers like when i was a kid my brain was full of phone numbers for all my friends because i needed to know those in order to call my friends well i don't know any phone number i know my phone number I don't even know my daughter's phone number. <laughs> I don't even know. I don't need to know it because mm-hmm. this thing's going to keep track of it for me. Mm-hmm. And so there's I'm already dependent on it. Like I've, I'm already part computer and my brain is now freed up to do something besides phone numbers. Right? Mm-hmm. So what well, we so the the idea is as as we can improve our ability to um you know make the computer's useful and let it do things that it's good at so my brain can focus on things that it that it's good at mm-hmm. you know then we can we can make humans more powerful mm-hmm. and so a big part of that has always been how do you make the computer faster with more memory lower power consumption lower heat output and smaller like those are all the goals we want to do all of those things because ultimately you know this is a pain in the ass i have to dedicate one of my entire hands to holding the thing mm-hmm. it would be nice if i had the thing built into my glasses wouldn't it 
or into my contact lenses, right? And as you can imagine, like a lot of the IO on a computer on a human is on the head, right? <laughs> it's almost all in the head, the ears, the eyes, the mouth, all of that, not to mention the brain. So you you we're going to put computers on your head. Like that's the natural trajectory. That's where we're going. It's mm -hmm. just that to get there, we have to make them smaller and better. So OQO was an early attempt to get from, to make the leap from laptop to pocket. Mm -hmm. And what we were able to do is shrink everything in a contemporary laptop to something the size of a passport. It was exactly the dimensions of a passport, but one inch thick. Mm -hmm. And it had a five-inch touch screen on it. It had a thumb board like a BlackBerry or what, or a or a you know a phone. It had a, th a thumb board. It had a um, thirty gigabyte hard drive, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, mm -hmm. everything that was in a laptop in those days, but in a and you could fit it in your pocket. Wow. And um, and it ran a full version of Windows at the time that we were using, um, you know, Windows two thousand or Windows ninety eight, mm -hmm. and um, and that was. It was unprecedented. Like no one had ever seen a computer that cool. Like we made the world's coolest computer, the world's smallest computer. Uh -huh. um, it was also, you know, in some sense too expensive. <laughs> um, and, as, and it didn't really work out as a successful product. Uh -huh. But a lot of that miniaturization work is what eventually made iPhones and things possible, right? Yeah. And so now we live with, you know, this is much more powerful than an OQO, but we're, you know, 20 years later. And um, the you know the the capability of getting all of that into something so small you know part of its origin story was at OQO, and you know and now the goal is you know we got to get past this. This is a milestone, and as you've probably heard, you know Apple is trying to figure out how to get glasses that can take on yeah. um, a lot of what you do, and of course they've done that with the watch. This is extremely low power, runs all day. And if you could get this capability in your glasses, that'd be a pretty good start. Mm. You know, just seeing your text messages without having to fish your phone out, hit, you know, thumbs up on them without having to, you know, get a device, ask Siri for, you know, um, a synopsis of the latest, you know, Game of Thrones episode or whatever you need to know. You know, you could do all that with glasses and not have to, you know, I don't have to dedicate your arms to the job. <laughs> um, so there's a, it just makes it more personal. And I think that, you know, like, you know, if you imagine that, like what I said about phone numbers, once my mm -hmm. glasses put your name on your forehead, then my brain is going to stop remembering names. Mm. Like why, what right now my brain is wasting so much processing power on remembering a bunch of names for people. I'm probably never going to see, but if my, Glasses could just tell me everybody's name when I see them. I'm never going to take those glasses off, right? <laughs> like that. Like yeah, brain functionality will be like uh, humans will use the less brain then. Like a lot of humans. No, 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 no. Are you using less brain now because you don't memorize phone numbers? Yeah. Or are you using your brain for other things? Yeah. Like I, I think the, you know, the the value like when i was a kid probably for you too like mm -hmm. i was in school i had to memorize you know important dates from history the name of every president the capital of every state in the us you know those are the kinds of things i was forced i'd spend a lot of time in school memorizing this shit 
mm. which Wikipedia knows. <laughs> and I never am more than arm's length <laughs> from mm. Wikipedia, <laughs> right? And so I, I could have spent that time on, you know, cognitive skills, analytical skills, learning what to do with the dates. And, the, and, the, and so, you know, like my kid, she doesn't learn that stuff. Like, why would she memorize the names of states? Like, she can, or the capitals of states, or any of that. She can look it up instantly. She lives in a world where she's not really going to have much value from memorizing that stuff. So that time in school could be spent learning what to do with your brain, right? We don't need brains to do things that computers are better at. Yes. Right now we need, you know, so she's learning math. She has to learn that process of like how math works, mm -hmm. but she's growing up in a world where like, you know, a computer is going to do the math <laughs> and we want that, you know, we want, we don't want humans doing the math <laughs> the mm -hmm. way we had to, you know, when we went to the moon, well, you know, humans were using slide rules and pencils, yeah. but now if mm -hmm. we go to the moon, we're going to have the computer do the math mm -hmm. and we're going to have the humans do the part that they're good at. Right. Yeah. And so I think that's really important thing for people to work on is just getting a clear sense mm -hmm. of how to augment, you know, we've got to understand computers are tools for us to use. Mm -hmm. so we want to learn about what they're good for, mm -hmm. use them for what they're good for, and then figure out what they suck at that we're good for and mm -hmm. do what, you know, and, and, and divide and conquer and that. And it's that, teamwork with computers that's going to make us more powerful and more successful yeah. and i think a lot of people get, you know get scared of that yes thank you so much for sharing and yeah as we are talking a lot more about innovation right uh, what are the real challenges do you see when it comes to the innovation yeah i mean a lot of it is um is just this dynamic between what it takes to do new things and what it takes to do things that we've done before, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, different contexts, different organizations are optimized for one thing or the other. And, you know, startups are good for doing new things in general, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, they're small, basically, you know, in the tech industry, a startup is like a million-dollar experiment, right? Mm -hmm. It's a way for us to run a lot of experiments. And they have a high failure rate because... Uh, we don't know what's going to work. We don't know what team is going to work, what idea is going to work, what product, what, you know, timing, anything. So we just have to try a bunch of things. And that's why we have zillions of startups mm -hmm. and they're all essentially a, a million dollar experiment. And occasionally one of them turns into a billion dollar success. Mm -hmm. So that's the, that's the model. And it works as an ecosystem, right? Mm -hmm. Some people can't get their heads around that. They look at it and say, Oh my God, it's so inefficient. There are so many failures. But that's how we discover the successes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and the truth is, in almost every context, you know, mm -hmm. there's a, nobody's actually smart enough to figure out what's going to be successful. Yep, yep, right? Yes. But the process of running a bunch of experiments and, and finding the one that performs the best, that's very uh, successful. Mm -hmm. Right? And so whether you're in a company or whether you're an investor in startups or whether, you know, whatever, what you really want to be able to do is, is run a lot of experiments, get a lot of shots on goal and find the ones that, that succeed and double down on them. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And we have a, you know, we have a way of doing that with startups. We don't have a way of doing that in a lot of big companies, mm-hmm. right? So in a lot of organizations, the reason they suck at innovation is that they can only invest in things that they're sure are going to work. Mm-hmm. And their only thing that they're sure is going to work is whatever they did last year. <laughs> and, right? So they're going to do the same thing they did last year. They're going to make a little faster, a little cheaper, a little better, but they're definitely not going to try something new and radical and different that could be 10 times better. Uh-huh. Right? Because it's a hundred times as risky as whatever they did last year. So the context is, is just wrong for, for innovation. Uh-huh. Right? And so you need to find, you always need to be looking for a context in which you have a chance uh-huh. at, running a bunch of experiments or trying a bunch of different things. And, you know, in American business, we used to have R and D departments. Mm -hmm. Um, Their job was to, to run the experiments and do the next big thing, but they were losing back in the eighties. They just kept losing to two assholes in a garage in Silicon Valley. Right. Because who had no money, no resources, no time, but they were able to innovate faster. So in America, we shut down R&D. That doesn't really exist in big companies anymore. Mm-hmm. But we replaced it with M&A, right? We replaced research and development with mergers and acquisitions. So now what big American companies do is they just watch all the startups, mm-hmm. wait for one of them to spike, and then they buy it up and take it to their global marketing, manufacturing, distribution, all the things that a big company is good at. And that's a, that's a way to have like a relationship with innovation. Mm-hmm. So instead of trying to become innovators themselves, which they're not likely to succeed at, mm-hmm. they figured out how to have a relationship with the people who are good at innovating in this, in this model, you know, description mm-hmm. at startups. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's a good example. Oh, wow. That's, that's really great. And uh, it was very wise actually. Thank you so much for sharing and moving towards, uh, Recent, like, you know, a lot more in the boom is machine learning and AI. So how do you envision the future of machine learning and AI? What advantages or the potential disadvantages can it bring to the society? Um, I couldn't be more excited about what's possible with the machine learning toolkit. I mean, I'm very critical of the notion of AGI and these ideas that people have about artificial intelligence taking over and turning us all into pets for robots or something. Mm -hmm. I think those are very irresponsible and dystopian stories. Mm -hmm. Machine learning is just another tool in the toolbox, Mm -hmm. but it's very powerful. And and it's so powerful, I'd say that if we we didn't invent any new technology for the rest of my life, Mm -hmm. machine learning, even if we don't invent a better machine learning algorithm, there's so much there right now that we can use to reinvent everything. Mm-hmm. that we could stay busy for the rest of our lives. I think it's the most important thing we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that when I was talking about that gap, mm-hmm. the gap is made much bigger by machine learning for every business, every industry, every problem. Right now, that because of, because of the potential in machine learning, we can do everything so much better than anyone has ever been able to do before. Yeah. So I could not be more excited about it. And I think... Um, you know, the way I think about it, uh, of all the problems in the world, mm-hmm. you know, that exist, mm-hmm. um, you know, 
the the potential to use machine learning to it to go after them is higher than almost any other tool mm-hmm. right when you look at all the technology in the world the most valuable thing technologies we have have been computers that's been true our whole lifetime mm-hmm. right there's a lot of other technology but the most of it is made possible by computers mm-hmm. computers are generally applicable and so you know i'd say computer technology is like 90 percent of what's valuable and of that machine learning is 90% of what's valuable mm. now, right? Meaning it's, it's, it's powerful and underutilized, right? And so the job for you and I and, and for all the folks from Data Science Go and from the, in the data science community is to, our job is to get our heads around what those tools can do mm-hmm. and what the problems are. Like our job is to match those things up. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, we don't, you know, it's not about inventing the next machine learning algorithm. We don't need to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, d- academic machine learning scientists are working on that. That's fine. DeepMind can work on that. OpenAI can work on that. We don't need that. What we need is a whole generation of data scientists who can understand a problem mm-hmm. and figure out how to use the data science toolkit with machine learning algorithms and with, you know, all the different kinds of computational modeling we have and stuff and bring that together to help humans make better decisions. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And that is the, that is the most powerful thing. And I think people are, don't have any sense right now of how much potential is there for humans to do a better job. Mm -hmm. If we start to use those tools, Mm -hmm. we're doing a lot of, very poor decision making right now using our intuition <laughs> and you know intuition was an amazing mm-hmm. and evolved capability that humans have but mm-hmm. we're kind of at the end of how good how far it can get us mm-hmm. now we need to use data to make decisions and that's what that's what this toolkit is about so i think there's uh i mean i'm so excited because i think we're at the we're at this moment in time where the technologies have been created, but they're still very technical. We mm-hmm. don't have something like Excel for big data, mm-hmm. right? And so the the tools have been in the hands of coders mm-hmm. and academics and people who can who can code. And that's a relatively small population who mm-hmm. don't always have a good sense of perspective on the problems we're trying to solve. And mm-hmm. so if you look at like what happened in the 80s with something like Excel is we were able to close that gap. Now we could bring the tools to the people who understood the problems. And Excel has been very powerful. And for 20, 30 years now, we've been living in a spreadsheet world Mm -hmm. where people could use computers in a general way because of spreadsheets. Mm -hmm. We need to get there. Right now we have a pile of Python scripts (laughs) and we have problems. And so the people who can marry those up are few and far between. And what we need to do is make more of those kinds of people who can help, help, you know, bring this, the, so we need two things. We need people who can bring that those tools to the problems, but we also need to make better tools mm-hmm. that make the data science toolkit more accessible. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's really going to have powerful, powerful effects on the world. I mean, I'm really looking forward to to the day when you know we manage our own cities the way we manage SimCity. You know, with computational models, um, you know, with lots of experiments in software before we, you know, make decisions in the real world, those kinds of things. So, yeah, mm-hmm. that's how I see it. 
Yeah, that's great actually. And are you working on anything specific in the day in this area actually? Um, yeah. So my what I've been doing is is trying to you know articulate. You know, part I'm really good at is is that interstitial connection, trying to understand a large scale problem. Mm -hmm. and the technologies that we could bring to it, you know? And so, you know, I'm pretty good at defining a vision for how the technology could have those effects. And so you could see how I'm, I, I tried to do that with, you know, with food, mm -hmm. with apparel manufacturing. Um, and I'm trying to do that for as many different industries and problems as I can. And sometimes that just means advising companies. And sometimes it means helping create startups and, and things like that. And then sometimes it's, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get you to think this way too, mm -hmm. right? Because there's a limit to how much I can do and how much I'm good for. But if I can get you to be thinking this way and your listeners to be thinking this way, then I think we can make more progress. So I'm, I'm trying to do some of that. That's great actually. And I'm really enjoying talking to you. So thank, thank you so much once again to be a part of uh, my yeah. Saturday podcast show. Yeah. So moving towards our next question is about, you know, uh, your singularity university. So what does it specifically sure. do and uh, how learning things in different way can be made possible for everyone? Well, singularity university is um, uh, in, in basically trying to help entrepreneurs and business people from all over the world um, learn about how we operate in Silicon Valley, mm -hmm. right? Um, that's how I think of it. You know, um, in Silicon Valley, we get a lot of benefits from having a community that's very technical, that's very aggressive about adopting new technology, understanding it, using it to, to go after every market opportunity, um, and in some sense, you know, go after problems. Um, that's a wonderful thing to be a part of. Um, and almost anywhere else in the world, it's hard to get quite as much of a community around that. Um, and so Singularity University is a way to kind of join a community that's, that's trying to, uh, to learn how to uh, uh, internalize those, those concepts. It's not because we're right. Like Silicon Valley has a lot of problems. It's not because of that, but we've been we've been the most successful in the world at adopting new technologies and, uh, and aggressively reinventing uh, po the possibilities that they give us. And so, you know, going forward in the world, it would be great if it wasn't just Silicon Valley that was so successful. But you know, part of how I see improving that is, you know, I want the rest of the world to learn, here's how we do it. Not because it's right, but because it's at least what you're up against, right? Not because you should try to do it the way we do it. You should try to do it better, <laughs> right? And that's really what I'm hoping to accomplish by being on the faculty. You know, I get to uh, share my perspective with people from all over the world there. And, um, and it's not because I want them to do it my way. I want them to do it better. Mm -hmm. And I and I think that if they, you know, if they start with a clear understanding of how we do it, that'll give them a chance to innovate beyond us and um, and to create a better culture and a better environment for for innovation. And um, and so and I think they set their sights too low. You know, I've been to every all over the world. I've been to like 
the Silicon Valley of Europe and the Silicon Valley of Latin America. And, you know, that's, that's a, that's not the right goal. <laughs> you know, first of all, it's not going to work. And second of all, the setting your sights too low. We need to go beyond Silicon Valley. We already have one of those. We don't need another one of those. We need something better. And so that's kind of, uh, how I think about it. Um, you can, people from all over the world come to Singularity University. They get a crash course in, you know, AR and VR and computational modeling and machine learning and drones and, you know, like all the stuff that's going on. And they learn about that. And that's important because it demystifies some of these technologies that sound really complicated. Um, and then they get to meet a bunch of entrepreneurs and see some comp tech companies and startups and learn about like how we operate, you know, so that you can fill your head with how that works. Mm -hmm. um, and because some of it's valuable to adopt and then some of it is bullshit you don't want anything to do with, you know, and, and getting a good view of that I think is helpful just to calibrate. So that's the, that's the thing. And then Singularity University has been really great about um, promoting mm -hmm. the, you know, what we call like exponential thinking, really understanding the power of technology to mm -hmm. change the world and try to aim entrepreneurs at bigger problems, you know, go after the sustainable development goals, go after a problem that a billion people have mm -hmm. instead of just trying to make a billion dollars. You know, that's, that's the kind of thing that really matters. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so it's been a great community for people who want to, you know, go after some bigger problems instead of just making more enterprise software or iPhone apps, you know? <laughs> Yeah, that's great, actually, and really a very uh, good initiative, I feel. Uh, yeah. Moving towards little closure towards this podcast is that, you know, truly it shows your passion and the interest towards Thanks. technology and the innovation, and uh, you are truly leading that. So what is your leadership style and any leader that you always admire or follow? Um, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, my um, leadership style is basically antagonism. Mm -hmm. So that just means I'm going to tell you what I think and you can take it or leave it. <laughs> um, and hopefully uh, that will inspire some people to try and either show me why I'm full of shit and uh -huh. do something better or, um, or, you know, at least try to raise their, their, or elevate their ambition. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, I, I think more successful leadership styles probably involve, you know, being patient and helping people you know, advance in a more methodical fashion. I'm a little bit more uh, shock and awe. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, it depends on the context as well. So when I I'm, feel when like, yeah, you are in the innovation. That way I feel like yeah. a lot more matters rather than, you know, uh, leading someone. It is more or going to be a mentoring, but when the person itself finds some idea or something, that person needs to be responsible. So, it makes sense mm. to me, actually, the way you said that, you know, either you do it or <laughs> either you don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big believer in, in personal responsibility and, and, you know, taking charge of what, uh, what you do with your, your own time and energy and talents and mm -hmm. attention. And, um, and so I'm just trying to give people a broader set of possibilities. Mm. And if I can show them how I see the world, which is probably one extreme, mm -hmm. you know, then they can kind of figure out what makes sense for them. 
Mm. And, and that, and that, um, it's hard for me to do everything. And so that's probably the thing I'm, I'm best for. I don't know. That's how I think about it. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing. Yeah. Moving towards, uh, the guidance to the audience actually mm. like books or online courses kind of would you like to recommend to the audience yeah i um you know what i think is that there's a um you know one of the things that's wonderful about learning to code mm-hmm. is that it you're basically learning you are learning a language you're learning to communicate to a machine mm-hmm. but but for that to work you really need to be able to express yourself in a very logical fashion mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and in a logical progression you know if you don't if you think through what you want the computer to do in a way that makes sense then it can't do it and it's just going to give you errors and so that's a that turns out to not just be useful for coding but it's a great way to think about everything else in life you know to be able to think about the end game like what am i trying to accomplish and what are the steps i need to take to get there mm-hmm. and if you don't learn that one way or another you can see a lot of people end up with, you know, they make poor decisions in their life and in their career and stuff because they're just fixated on what they want, but they aren't thinking through the the things, the choices they need to make to get there. And so I think it's really valuable to learn to code for mm-hmm. anyone. Um, even, and I don't even do a lot of coding anymore. In fact, I'm not even a very good coder, right? I learned to code before software engineering was a thing. You know, I'm probably not somebody you want <laughs> writing code on your project. If it's like figure out a language I've never seen before, I can probably do it faster than anyone else. But I probably can't, uh, you know, I don't know about the, some of the things that you would learn in a computer science or software engineering program. So, but, but the point is you could learn to code from watching YouTube videos now. Like it's so accessible there's no reason not to do it. And it's very, it can be really fun and powerful. Mm-hmm. And, and some of the, I think some of the online courses do make it fun. I haven't taken them, so I can't recommend them. Mm-hmm. But the second part of it is I think, you know, just learning, like we are in a renaissance mm-hmm. right now where we have all these powerful technologies around data science. Mm-hmm. And we are at the beginning of understanding how to use them Mm-hmm. And so I think it's an extraordinary opportunity to make yourself useful, mm-hmm. relevant, powerful, to go learn about that stuff and, um, and, and, and the mindset that comes with it. So when you ask about books, one of them that comes to mind that I think is a great way of just getting your head around it is uh, Factfulness. Have you read that book? No, I never actually. I never so, so Factfulness is the last book by Hans Rosling, who unfortunately uh, died a year or so ago, right before the book came out. Um, who was Hans Rosling was a uh, professor, really amazing guy. He did some great TED talks. Um, did a great job of of advancing data visualization to show people how um, different kinds of trends. Mm-hmm. were happening in the world using bubble charts like and he and so he, he he was kind of a pioneer in making data science accessible mm-hmm. um but his book called factfulness is really about you know how to use a a, a, a mindset around data mm-hmm. and a mindset around making you know logical data-driven decisions um 
And it's really a great book. It's accessible. Anyone can read it. High school kids could read it. It's, it's a really wonderful book, and it has great examples that help people see the gap between their instincts, their intuition, okay. and the decisions they would make based on that okay. versus what they would do if they, if they internalize the data and the facts. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and so factfulness does a really great job of helping you discover that for yourself because we're all very susceptible and okay. fallible. We think we're so smart. Um, and some of us are smart, but we abuse that and think end up thinking we're smart about everything when we're really only smart. Like I'm smart about computers, but you probably shouldn't ask me about politics because I don't know, you know, so there's, there's, um, there's, things like that that are important part of self-discovery. So I, I would recommend Factfulness to anyone. Oh, wow. Really great book. I need to order it today. Yeah. So thank you so much for sharing. And yeah. moving towards our last question is about, you know, uh, always it happens that, you know, a person when it tries to enter the new field, uh, when it comes to the career or grow in a particular field in the career, actually, sometimes mm. people struggle to achieve that. So any tips or advice to the people who are looking to grow or enter into a particular field for their career? Well, I think, um, you know, probably a better thing for me to do is talk to the people who don't know what to do. Um, you know, uh -huh. If you want to, you know, there's, there's kind of nominally like two tracks you could get on. Uh -huh. One track is like, I'm going to be a dentist, uh -huh. like a dentist on the day you graduate from college and become a dentist, you can get a spreadsheet and figure out probably to the dollar how much you're going to make over your entire career, uh -huh. right? You can only see this many patients. You can see this many patients a day. There's this many days in a year. You can charge this much like, you know, exactly what you're going to do. Um, and there's probably very little question about whether, you know, what work you'll be doing 20 years from now. It's pretty much the same work you're doing today. And that appeals to a certain type of person. Like they like that predictability, the stability, they like excelling at doing one thing really well. Um, and that's great. I'm probably not very helpful at giving anybody advice if they want that much certainty about their career. Right. Um, in my career, if you, you know, I can sort of paint a picture that makes it look like a genius master plan, mm -hmm. but I never knew what I was doing, mm -hmm. right? I never had a plan. I still don't, right? Mm -hmm. I'm just going to go, st I, and I, what I've always done is found the coolest project I could find, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. What I was most excited about, because if I was working on something I was interested in, I knew that I would learn a lot. Mm -hmm. and I would work really hard, mm -hmm. right? Because if you're interested, then it's not work. Mm. Like your brain, if, it, if it's interested, then you stay engaged. You wake up thinking about it. You go to bed thinking about it. You perform well. You learn more. You spe you'll spend all night trying to figure it out. Like all that's easy and fun. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a delightful way to spend your life, and I've been doing that my whole career. Mm -hmm. Most people give up on that because it's got a lot of uncertainty and it doesn't sound like a plan and it's hard to get your parents to think it sounds smart and, you know, there's no prestige in it. You know, there's a lot of those things. But so I think a lot of people are just optimizing for safety and security and predictability in a way that um, 
isn't really what we need so much right now. Um, right? Yeah, like right now, we need, the corona situation shown that. Yeah, yeah we need people yeah. who are resilient, mm. who can figure out how to make themselves valuable, mm -hmm. right? Who can adapt and change. And so, you know, I'm probably a good example of that. And what I think is, you know, if, you know, a way to maybe get there is to think about, okay, what's your worst case scenario? Mm, okay. Like you're probably living it right now is the truth for most people. Yes. Your, mo your worst case scenario is like, okay, lost my job. Girlfriend left me. iPhone battery is dead. I got to sleep on my mom's couch. Like that's, it's bad, but you know, it's not, it's not that bad. Yeah. Like you've been there before. So what? Why would you, why would you sacrifice having a career that you love and enjoy and working on things you're excited about and passionate about mm -hmm. to avoid that? It's not, it's not a trade-off that actually makes sense, but most people, without even thinking about it, choose to go to college, get the degree, become a doctor, do what the, makes their parents proud, you know, and, prob and hate every minute of it. And so, you know, like, it, it's, not, it's not a good... That's why I, I think it's not a good decision-making process. So I think a lot of people are over-optimizing for security. And instead of that, they should optimize for resilience. Mm -hmm. They should optimize for, you know, for really going after the things that, that are exciting to them that they believe in. You know, I've on, I only work on things that I'm excited about and believe in. Mm. And that has paid off. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And it's really very wise advice to anybody to have, actually. Oh, um, thanks. Most, of the, time, most yeah. of the times it happens, actually, as you mentioned, that people call for the job security or it always yeah. happens that it's a pattern, right? Because yeah. uh, parents enforce uh, children, actually, to take the education in the direction where they can most probably get into the job and yeah. earn for themselves. Yeah, it's all come down to the financial stability, being independent. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm not to, not to disparage anyone who has to make those choices. You know, depending on your situation, mm -hmm. you know, you might really need that stability and security, and that might make the make the best be the best choice for you. I'm just trying to also sort of validate the the opposite end of the spectrum, where you know, because yeah. that's what I've done. Yeah, but it is very definitely important that, you know, the way you mentioned that it is important to explore and sometimes it's important not yeah. to have the plan and yeah. go, uh, you know, follow your passion. Yeah. So thank you so much. And yeah. Really enjoyed uh, talking to Thanks. you and uh, it's really great to see you back again. So thank you. Really appreciate all your time and audience. Definitely you are going to enjoy this episode. Good. As I always say, until we meet, happy leading, let's live together. Stay safe. Bye for now. Awesome. Thanks so much.